Well, hey, if you have uh, your Bibles, open up to Exodus chapter 11. <clears throat> Exodus chapter 11, we're continuing our journey uh, through this great epic story known as Exodus. And so uh, we'll, we're going to recap here in just a second, but we're continuing today in chapter 11. We're going to go all the way to chapter 12, verses 1 through 32. Last week, we looked at those first nine plagues. We're going to look at the 10th and final plague today. But before we dive into that, uh, let me pray and ask the Lord Jesus to bless his word and help us to receive it in our hearts. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are. You are so good. Lord, as we just sang, God, would you fix our hearts and align our thoughts around your goodness? There are so many distractions that could potentially derail our thoughts as we listen to a sermon, and, and there's so many things that we could let our minds wander to, but Holy Spirit, would you fixate our hearts and our minds and our thoughts on you and your word? Jesus, let every person in here today see you and your glory. Lord, let us all receive your word and be encouraged and transformed by it. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, like I said, last week we looked at those first nine acts of judgment against the Egyptians sent by God himself, right? God was very clear that sin cannot go unpunished, and so God is God, right? We are not. He is the ultimate judge, and he gets to decide when sin will be judged and in what way, and so we see and specifically in the Old Testament, him judging people's sin in different ways. And against Egypt, it was in these, the form of these nine plagues. Now, we know that ultimately the consequence of anyone's sin is eternal separation from God, is death in that way. But in this story, we see God judging the Egyptians and Pharaoh himself for his rebellion against their true one God, the one creator and so we see that coming up until chapter 11, where now we get to what will be a tenth and final act of judgment. So we've got a lot of ground to cover this morning, but this is good, good stuff in God's word. So let's look at chapter 11, verse 1. We're going to start there. The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. So now God is going to describe to Moses what this plague will be. Look at verse 4 through 7. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been or ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. God is telling us 
that this plague is coming and it's going to be devastating. The firstborns in all the land will be killed. And then we look now in chapter 12 and God gives these instructions to Moses as to how his people should prepare for this. Look at this. Exodus 12, verses 1 through 8. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Now, in our modern minds, this sounds bizarre. And if you're unfamiliar with this story, it sounds really bizarre. Why is God bringing judgment on all of the firstborn children in the land? Why is he instructing the Israelites to kill a lamb, take its blood, wipe it on their doorpost, eat the lamb a very specific and certain way? We're going to see the answers to that. Let's keep reading verse 12 through 14. God continues to say what will happen. He says, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. So the Lord continues to instruct and tell them a little bit more purpose and meaning behind why and what is about to happen. Look down, verse 24 through 27. God says, you shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. A couple of verses later, we see the description of the actual historical event that took place 
when God brought this great and final act of judgment on the firstborn sons of all the land who did not have blood covering their homes. Chapter 12, verses 29 through 32, gives us this grim depiction of what happened. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up! Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go! Serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone. And bless me also. This story on the outset may be confusing. Why is God doing this? Why is he choosing to act in this way? What is this for? Why is this happening to Pharaoh? Why is this happening to the Israelites? Lots of questions we're left with, and so I want us to focus on one main question today. What does this event known as the Passover, what does this teach us? Because I think as we look and see what God is doing thousands of years ago in this event, what he did then is unbelievably applicable to your life and your heart today. How so? Let's see. What does the Passover teach us in the 21st century today? It teaches us this, number one, we all owe a debt to God that we cannot pay. Every single person who's ever lived owes a debt to God because of our own choosing, because of our own sin and rebellion against him, we are separated from him forever. Our sin has put us in a giant hole of debt that we cannot pay ourselves out of. In Exodus 11, verse 5, did you notice that it said that this act of judgment from God was coming to everyone, right? It says, what? From the firstborn of Pharaoh, so the king's son will pay for the consequences of this family's sin who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl. Who were the slaves in Egypt? The Israelites. You see, no one is exempt from accountability to their creator. We are all in debt to God, even the Israelites. Do you notice that? The Israelites are not exempt from this act of judgment. I want to be very clear today that this was not just against the Egyptians. If the Israelites had not done what God said and put the blood of the lamb over the doorpost, then guess what? Their firstborn would have been killed as well. There is nothing that any human can do to reconcile the debt that we owe God on our own effort or merit or payment. 
I heard a pastor say one time, it's like, it's like trying to jump across an ocean, right? So after church today, here's what we're going to do. We're just all going to go down to the beach, all right? And we're going to say, okay, guys, it's real simple. Africa is just over there, all right? Now let's jump to it, okay? Let's go. Ready? Let's all hold hands, all right? Let's jump, right? I mean, how many feet would you make it? You know, I, I mean, me, maybe two and a half, you know what I mean? Like some of you are a little more athletic and younger, maybe four, I don't know, right? If you get a running start, maybe five, right? I mean, we're, nobody's doing that, right? I mean, that's not just hyperbole. That's just the reality that no one can jump across the ocean of debt, of sin that we have created between us and God. I don't care how good you are at swimming, right? I don't care how good you are at jumping. I don't care how good you think you are at living a good moral life and doing good things and trying to please God and please others and impress people. None of that matters. It's an ocean you cannot cross. It's an ocean you can't jump across or do anything to get across. So we try to dig ourselves out of this, though. You know that? We all do this. We do something bad. And then what do we do? We maybe feel a little bit guilty, and so we try to do something good to make up for it. Some of you have something bad you've done in your past, and you've lived in anxiety for years because you're trying to make up for it. You are trying to make up for it. You are trying to pay God back somehow with good effort. And you think that somehow that will absolve the guilt of what you did. And it drives you to be anxious. It drives you to live in basically constant fear of you not performing well for God and others. We all struggle with this thought that somehow we can pay our debt if we can just try hard enough and do good things. It's not true, though. It's never good enough. Because our God is perfect. He is a perfectly holy God who requires sinless perfection for someone to live with Him forever. No one on this earth is going to achieve sinless perfection. It's the ocean we can't cross. So we all owe this debt to God that we cannot pay. We are all standing in the courtroom of God, condemned, guilty to die, to spend eternity without Him, and that is fair. That is just. It is right and it is fair for God to call in his debt, this debt, right, and judge us for our sin. That brings us to the second point. The thing that the Passover teaches us, number two, our sin will be judged. And we did talk about this. You see, the firstborn sons, this is strange in our minds, but in the ancient world, it's not so strange because the firstborn sons in the ancient world were very significant. You know why? Because they bore the responsibility, the weight of the family's future on their shoulders. That's just how the world operated. The firstborn son represented the family. So when God brings judgment for sin upon this people and this land, the firstborn sons are representing each household for Egypt and Israel. Remember many years before, Pharaoh thought, you know, he thought he was a god. And you know, remember what he did? He unjustly executed the Israelite male children. You remember that? Moses' mother had to hide him in a basket 
because Pharaoh was killing unjustly these male children that represented the homes of the Israelites. But the tables have turned, and now the one true God is bringing righteous judgment, righteous righteous judgment and justice against sinful creatures who have rebelled against him, and the firstborn males represent each sinful household. And like we've already said, no one can hide from God's judgment. No family, no household, no person is exempt. Because here's the thing, this is tough. I don't, I don't downplay this. This is tough for us to understand in our minds today, but I just want you to imagine a judge, a judge in today's world who would let a terrible serial killer stand before him in the courtroom and just basically say, hey man, you know what? Just try to do better and it's all good. I'm gonna forgive you and we're just gonna sweep this under the rug. And so you can go out free. Every single one of us in here would be irate at that judge for not bringing justice to this serial killer. Our God is a good judge. And so he cannot just sweep our sin under some giant rug that's up in heaven. He can't just sweep our sin under that rug and pretend like it's gone. Now listen, I know how it is. When you're having company over to your house, what do you start doing, right? You just start hiding things, right? <laughs> Especially if you're like me and you have kids, right, with toys. Just, just shove them somewhere, right? You know, hide them behind the couch, whatever, right? <laughs> no, we try to make them pick them up properly, but you know, that's what we do. So when you're having company over to your house, if you just sweep the dust under the rug, literally, the dust is still there. You didn't like, Make it disappear, right? It's still there. See, our sin cannot just boop, evaporate into thin air. The actions that we've done, the things and the horrible things we've done that have come out of our own hearts against God, against others, can't just sweep that away. God is a good judge. And so our sin will be judged. And that is right, that's fair, that's just. But there's really good news. God provides a way for his judgment against our sin to not have to fall on us. And that brings us to the third and most glorious truth you will see out of this story you ever hear in your life Jesus is the true Passover lamb. Why all the specific instructions here? Why is God telling them to do all these things about killing a lamb and, and putting the blood on the doorposts of each home? Why even do this? What's the point of this seemingly unnecessary ritual? That's what it seems on the outset. You know what God's doing? God is teaching his people what salvation requires. He is teaching them and they will learn to depend on a just and gracious, merciful God 
He is teaching them what salvation, what must take place for them to be saved from the wrath of a holy, just God so they can understand and appreciate the depth of the meaning of their salvation. Salvation from sin, to be reconciled to God. God is teaching them that blood must be shed. Look at Hebrews 9.22. It tells us this, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You can't sweep it under a rug. Someone must pay the eternal price for our sin. The reason for this is that it's, it's not that complicated. The reason that blood must be shed so that sin can be forgiven is because we have rebelled, right? That rebellion against God Almighty is a capital offense. It requires a death penalty because all who have sinned deserve eternal death, eternal separation from God. We cannot live in the presence. Sin cannot enter the presence of heaven. It must be crucified, you could say. So God is teaching his people that sin requires death. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. But here's the amazing thing. You ready for this? It doesn't have to be your death. It doesn't have to be their death. It didn't have to be the Egyptians' death. It didn't have to be the Israelites' death. It doesn't have to be anyone's death from any nation or country. The lamb without any spot on it could take their place. In other words, it was a perfect lamb. It was a beautiful, perfect lamb. No blemish. No imperfection. A perfect sacrifice could be killed in their place instead of them. And so God sees the blood that paid for their sin, covering their doors, and what happens? His judgment passes over them. And instead of God's judgment, what do they get? They get his mercy. They get his blessing. They get to be a part of his family. That is the point of the Passover. That's the point of all of this in Exodus chapter 12. God is teaching his people about the great cost that comes with sin and the great cost that grace requires. Someone must pay. Freedom is not free. Somebody has to pay for this. In John chapter 1 verse 29, John the Baptist said of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Passover lamb who has no imperfection, who has no blemish. When he died on the cross, do you know what was happening? Just as the blood that the Israelites spread over their doorposts, when Jesus died on the cross, he was dying just as the lamb who died in their place. He was dying in your place. His blood was shed for you so that God's wrath and his judgment doesn't have to come against you. It came against Jesus himself. He took it, the full brunt of it, all of it. He absorbed it for you in your place so that now, now by faith in Jesus Christ and nothing else, not yourself, 
Not how good or far you can think you can jump across the ocean of sin. Only faith in Jesus Christ. You put his blood over your heart, and guess what? God passes over the judgment. You get his grace. He is the firstborn son who died. You see that? Jesus is the son who died to represent this family. That is grace. Pastor Tony Marita says, blood represents life. Without it, we die. Righteousness is the lifeblood we need in order to be in relationship with God. Because we do not have this in ourselves, we need another's righteousness. Where does your righteousness come from? You need Christ's righteousness, his blood, his life. I heard heard another pastor say, the, the gospel... The gospel of Jesus Christ, if you could put it in four words, you know what it is? We talked about this in our class Wednesday, our current and equipped class. Jesus in my place. That's it. If you want to share the gospel with somebody, focus on that phrase. Jesus in my place. Think about it. It's not you, it's Jesus. And what did he do? He stood in your place for you on your behalf. That's the gospel. Not only did Jesus pay for your sins on the cross, though, not only does, are you forgiven, get, guess what else? There's a great exchange that took place. Hey, let's not stop. Let's not stop. There's more. There's more good news. It's not just that you're forgiven. It's that you were given something. Yes, your sins are forgiven in Christ because of the cross. But you know what else you get? You get his righteousness. His record. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that crazy good? It's like when you're in school. You know, maybe your report card wasn't so hot when you were a kid, right? Or some of you are still in school, right? Maybe maybe you're struggling a little bit with some of your grades or your report card, and so you hand that to your parent, you know, and that's like kind of the walk of shame, right? And so you just give it over. But guess what? You know what Jesus does? He takes your report card for life. He says, you give that one to me. And I'm going to give you mine. I'm going to give you my record. And it's going to be credited to your life. That's amazing. (laughs) That's amazing. There's nothing that we could do to earn that. It is a gift of grace. T. Desmond Alexander says that the Passover lambs, their blood... It cleanses and it purifies those who are stained and defiled by sin. And they sanctifies, and it sanctifies those who eat it. By eating the holy meat, the Israelites were becoming holy in this, in this process, right? So again, what is that teaching us? We get Christ's righteousness if we feast on the joy and the salvation of Jesus, metaphorically speaking, we get his righteousness, That's how you are saved. It's by turning away from the idea that you can save yourself, that you can jump across the ocean in any way. 
either by being an atheist and just trying to be, do good moral things or being super religious and coming to church and doing all those things and thinking that that's what's going to get it. It doesn't matter. The, Christ, or the, sorry, the church-going person and the atheist are in the same boat. If either of them think that they could swim across that ocean. What the gospel tells us is this. John chapter 6, verse 53 through 56. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Now to the people Jesus was speaking to, they're thinking, this sounds crazy. What are you talking about? Right? But Jesus is speaking metaphorically here. Right? This is symbolic. Not at all meant to be taken literally. But think about what Jesus is saying in light of the Passover. In light of the Passover, he is saying, I am the Passover lamb. The true, the new, the only. So how does this become true for you? As the Israelites covered their doors with faith that the blood would be their substitute and sacrifice in their place, so you must put your faith in the blood of Jesus to cover your heart. See, like I said, if the Israelites had not covered their homes, they would be condemned just like the Egyptians were. They weren't any better than the Egyptians. Let's be clear. And we're not either. Salvation is not something that we work for or try to get. It is a gift you must receive. So I plead with you today, stop trusting yourself in whatever way and instead turn to Jesus to be everything you could never be. Trust that His perfect life, His perfect life, not the one you're trying to live, His perfect life, His perfect death sacrificial death in your place and his resurrection. He is alive and has the blessings of heaven to give you for all eternity. Trust that. Trust what is finished, what has been accomplished for you instead of you. When we trust him in that way, that's salvation. That's it. You don't have to pray a certain magical formulated prayer. You don't have to walk some aisle. You can be saved and enter into a relationship with God right now in your heart where you're sitting by trusting, turning away from trusting yourself and trusting Jesus in all these ways. It's not some religious tradition. It is a pure relationship with your creator. Some of you probably know a lot about church. You know a lot about the facts of who Jesus is. But you're sitting here today and you have never truly repented and turned away from trusting yourself to save yourself. You've been trying to cover up the sin in your heart with your own blood, sweat, and tears. Your own efforts to try to prove that you're a good person deep down. It's exhausting. It's an exhausting, anxious way to live, isn't it? Because that's not payment. That's not payment, that's cover-up. 
What you need is a payment. And it's one you must trust that the only one who can pay it has. But for those of us who have repented and believed, if that's you and you've trusted Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, you've truly turned to his sacrifice for you, guess what? Jesus has paid your debt. You are God's forever. You belong to him. And so as God said about the Israelites, not even a dog can growl against you. And trust me, I'm not really a pet person, so I get it. Not even a dog can growl against you because you belong to God. In other words, you're, you're protected forever. You're protected forever. It doesn't matter what the world says. It doesn't matter what charges are brought against you. You are protected and secure for all eternity. And that brings us to the final point. You know what the Passover teaches us? We must remember and celebrate our freedom. Remember and celebrate this freedom. You know, every year when January 1st rolls around, what do you do? Create New Year's resolutions maybe, right? So, you know, oh, I'm going to read more. I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to do all these things, right? I say all those stuff. And then when mid middle February or sooner, I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I doing in my life? You know, like I haven't done any of that stuff, right? Can anybody relate to failing New Year's resolutions? But it's funny it's funny the psychological part of us that looks at a new calendar and thinks, man, this is a great chance for a new opportunity. It's a great start, right? A, a chance for a new start, a new beginning. There's excitement. We hope in that opportunity. Maybe you see your birthday that way, right? It's a new year for you physically, right? Well, you know what's happening in this story that's remarkable? This is Israel's spiritual birthday. This will be the most momentous occasion of their lives. Nothing, nothing will ever be more important than what happened to them that night when God passed over them and they experienced salvation in that way, right? So look at Exodus 12 too. What did God tell them? This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. In other words, God is reorganizing her whole lives around his salvation of them because this is a new beginning. It's a new life. And it's very much worth remembering. It's worth celebrating for years to come. God said it would be a memorial day for them throughout your generations, he says. In Exodus 12, 26, he says, and when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? Well, then you tell them what it means. You teach your children about this great experience of salvation. You tell them why we're remembering and why we're celebrating this. Because there's nothing more important than this. And some of us, we organize our lives and our calendars around all the other things of the world. But the one thing that can only outlast this world, we just get to on our calendar if we can. Man, being a part of this church and coming to worship on Sunday mornings, that should be the most celebratory part of your week that you look forward to. Man, I can't wait to go remember. I can't wait to go celebrate with God's people because I'm saved and God's judgment has passed over me and I want to celebrate that with others. On the night before he died, Jesus, the sacrificial lamb of God, you know what he did? He started a new tradition. Some of, some of y'all don't like new traditions, right? <laughs> 
Well, Jesus started a new tradition. Here it is, a better one, a better tradition than the Passover, one that would remind his people of what great cost that was involved with the purchase of our souls to free us from our debt. In Luke 22, verse 19, says, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in what? Remembrance of me. We call this the Lord's Supper. We celebrate and we remember when we partake in this activity called the Lord's Supper, we remember that the blood of Jesus has been painted over our hearts. That there was nothing we could do to earn that gift. It was a gift of grace. We have turned from trusting ourselves and we trust Christ now to be everything we could never be, to die in our place, to raise from the grave and unite us with him forever. If you have trusted Jesus in that way, then guess what? You are invited and you get to participate with us today as we partake in the Lord's Supper. We're gonna remember, church. We're gonna celebrate today that the blood covers our hearts. 